And hi, hello, welcome everybody, and welcome to a very, very special edition of To The Turnbuckle, presented by Snapman Productions. We are live on Facebook, we're live on School On Air, we're live on Heel Turn Wrestling, we're live on our Facebook page, but we're here today for a very, very special reason, and we're here today with a very special guest, more importantly. We're here today with Eugene, and he's here to talk about Dylan's Annual Autism Awareness Fundraiser. Eugene, how are you? I'm doing great, you know, we're, we're here in Worcester, Ohio, the big city of Worcester. Ohio. There's going to be a huge event tomorrow night right there at the Cornerstone School Gymnasium. I'm taking on the Iron Man Rob Conway for about the one billionth time, and I'm going to put a whooping on somebody in Wooster. The Wooster whooping is coming tomorrow. The Wooster whooping is coming tomorrow, but Rob Conway, I know that you guys have seen each other a hundred times, but he's a former two-time NWA world champion, former WWE star. Uh, look, uh, former WWE tag team champion. Sure is. Thanks for, time. Thanks, for, thanks, for do, thanks for doing my job for me. I well, appreciate you, that. You're no good at you. You know, I got to help you out a I, little bit. I appreciate it. That's, that's what you're about, Eugene. You're, you're a fantastic friend. So, but, uh, let's, if we can, uh, what, can we? What, we'll see. You know the best part about having your own action figure? What's that? You get to play with yourself in public. <laughs> well, I look forward to having an action figure someday. But <laughs> that's good. Six points Oh well, I can't say what he'd say, but that's good stuff, pal. <laughs> that's good stuff. All right. So, uh, what's your, what's your mindset going into face Rob Conway tomorrow? I'm going to try to get the claw on him as quick as I can. The Wooster whooping, it doesn't have to be, I don't get paid by the hour. I'm going to try to get in, get out, and don't get hurt. All right, so you're kind of, you're going to Von Eric that thing and handle oh, no, Baron Von Raschke. All right. The Baron. Okay. All right. All right. So if we can, how about we try to take, uh, well, let's, let's really delve into Eugene. Let's, let's delve into the, the character for a second. Of course, a lot of people know you as well as Mr. Wrestling, Nick Dinsmore. Uh, let's talk about the character's connection to autism. I, I'm sure you've been asked a hundred times, but where did the idea for the gimmick come from? Uh, and let's chat about that. And then I'll, I promise we'll ask some questions you've never been heard before. So my, uh, uh one of my wrestling trainers, trained by the Nightmare Danny Davis, but I was also trained by the hustler Rip Rogers when I wrestled at Ohio Valley Wrestling. I began wrestling in 1996. Uh, I was hired to a developmental contract in 1999. And about, I don't know, maybe mid-2003, Rip came to me. Rip's son has autism. And Rip gave me the idea, what about a character that might not be very social in the back, might not be able to tie his shoelaces, might not be able to put the square peg in the square hole, but the minute the bell rings, he can do everything flawlessly. And there was a little bit more to the character that never really got fleshed out, but Eugene knew all the trivia mm-hmm. and all the history and knew everything that there was to know about wrestling, you know, just, just like an idiot savant rain man type, uh, type character. Mm-hmm. And Rip had, uh, given me the idea of that. So when the agents came down, Fit Finley and Dean Malenko and Arn Anderson, I pitched it to them and they said, well, you know, wrestling's kind of gone beyond that, that hokey gimmicky stuff. We're more reality based now. Okay. Okay. So then. Every now and then the writers would come down. The writers came down, and pitched it to the writers. Vince would never do anything like that. No, Vince would not do anything. Okay. So months go by. I mean, it's probably seven months after the germ of an idea that Rip gave me. And uh, I'd seen a lot of guys complain and then get called up. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. Mm. I had no intention of quitting, but I, I, I told Doug Basham, I said, I think I'm going to quit and go to Japan. Didn't know anybody in Japan. Didn't know how I would get there. Wasn't going to quit. Uh, uh, Doug tells Dean Malenko that Dean tells Johnny Ace 
All of a sudden, I'm sitting February 2004 in a meeting with Vince McMahon and Stephanie. Vince goes, I want to get back to character-based wrestling. And all of a sudden, that just spewed out. The idea that I formulated months before that I hadn't really thought about came out. At that time, I think they did a, a taping for Saturday's main event that Austin was on, but Austin mm-hmm. was there. Mm-hmm. Austin walks in the back into Vince's office and Vince goes, Steve, you ever seen this guy wrestle? Austin goes, I don't think so. I said, Danny, Danny Davis trained me because I knew Danny and Austin had become friends in the Dallas territory. And Austin goes, okay, well, he's probably one of the best. And it was like that note of confidence that uh, Vince goes, all right, we'll start on Monday. Then I had just a couple of days to figure out who Eugene was. <laughs> so how, how hard was that for you to, uh, you said Vince said start on Monday. So what was your, what was your mindset going into, you had that meeting with him, we'll start on Monday. What did you think leaving there? Well, now if I was in NXT, I would study my character archetype and uh, find correlating similes throughout media. But I just tried to concentrate on how I felt about wrestling when I was a kid. Or... If I saw kids in the crowd, how they reacted to anything. If they were happy, they would just be overly excited. Or if they were sad, they, you know, they were kind of back or bashful or, or whatever it was. And I just kind of really just drew it on what I saw. What I saw kids at. Because my thing was, Eugene, they said Eugene was special. And my thing was, he had the mind of a child more than anything else. That, that was just it. And he, he just he felt like, and that's tried, how I tried to pull it. All right. Well, we're doing this. Uh, we're doing this podcast with uh, my producer Travis Napper, my uh, my esteemed. What are you, a co-host? I suppose, Jason, Mad Daddy McCarthy. I guess we could call yeah. him a co-host. Uh, Fly on the wall. Yeah, something. Some, something to annoy me. He's, he's a. He's, yeah, he's the human gnat. Wow. Wow. Uh, Mr. McCarthy, got any questions fly. for any questions for Eugene? Anything you want to touch on? Uh, I don't want to steal all your thunder. I mean, it's fine. What did you say the name was? Uh, Jason. It doesn't matter. I knew I was going to get it. You're wrong. <laughs> My apologies. Continue. I mean, you're totally fine. Don't Have fun. That's what we're here for. It's my only like off the top question that's not on the rundown because I'm a. Huge mark for this off guy. Script, off script. Off script. Here we go. Did you ever wrestle? I'm I'm sure you wrestled Chris Jericho. How were those matches when you did wrestle him? And how, how was he like I was to? I Jericho, but that was it, I think. I, I can't remember anything else I was in with. But I, I, was, I, was, I looked up to Jericho. I was friends with him. I met him. Before I got hired in 1999, 1998, I wrestled for WCW. I did about two nitros, three thunders, and maybe 10 Saturday nights. I met Jericho there. And then... He came out when he was with WWE. He would come down to Ohio Valley Wrestling every now and then and wrestle some of our bigger shows. So I was always friendly with him, but I think just about a Royal was all that I was in the ring with him. But one of the high spots was uh, I was on Jericho's highlight reel when Triple H first came down and confronted Eugene in the ring. Jericho told me later that that was the highest rated segment of the previous two years. Wow. Well, uh, that's not going to do me any favors because he thinks Jericho is the greatest thing in the world. And so I'm going to tell him that was thanks to Eugene. All right. Speaking of Eugene, you're, you're now on a, you're now starting a farewell tour. Uh, talk about that. Uh, why are you choosing to do that now? Well, you know, handsome Jimmy Valiant was on retirement tour for 15 years. Kiss has been on farewell tour for at least 12 years. Eugene's last matches are just going to be the retirement tour. It's going to go until I have my last match. Maybe it's two years. Maybe that's 10 years. Maybe that's, maybe that's tomorrow night. I don't know when it is, but we're starting it now. So if you want to see Eugene, come to your town, call your local promoters, and get all of Eugene. So it could be tomorrow night against Rob Conway. How fitting would that be? Yeah, that might be it. That's how the book should end. 
<laughs> so so it's just as it's just as long as you as you can possibly make it go. So so you could be uh, you could be doing this for thirty years. That's right. I've been all around the world. Yeah. I've been to Kalamazoo, Kathmandu, Timbuktu, Rancho Cucamonga, <laughs> and Lake Titicaca. And I know two things for sure. I would give my right arm to be ambidextrous, number one. And number two, everybody better come to the Cornerstone Gym tomorrow night because we're going to have a, a Wooster whooping on Rob Conway. Absolutely. And I've only known two people, folks, and well, now now I know two people to go to Kathmandu. The one was Bob Seeger, and now Eugene. So that is a rare company. Come on down. He'll tell you all those stories of Kathmandu. It's a big league tune, by the way. What you going to do, brother? It's going to run wild on you, I can guarantee it. <laughs> Uh, so, but let's talk about long before you were Eugene, of course, the, the, what you're best known for. You were in How About Wrestling, as you talked about. And, uh, my opinion, one of the best matches you did there was against Chris Benoit, Christmas Chaos. I watched it the other night on your YouTube channel. Uh, can you talk about the memories of that match? I know it was for the, uh, the championship, the Ohio Valley World Championship. You're in Louisville, uh, built at your hometown. Jim Cornette on commentary, even. What's your memories of that match? Yeah, it was. Was it? Yeah. The Rico at the time. Uh, no, no, you did. Yeah. Um, I, I remember. I just watched it last night, brother. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were told the matches in maybe November, and we were supposed to have Christmas Chaos in December. Mm-hmm. WWE wrestled the night before, I think in Little Rock, Arkansas or something. Huge snowstorm hits. Everything was shut down, so they had to reschedule the show. They didn't return any tickets, and they ended up selling more tickets, and we had it in January. But that was the match that, like, made me a made guy in Louisville. All of a sudden, I was sitting around. I went, I went 20 minutes toe-to-toe with, with Chris Benoit, and everybody saw me differently then. That's when I was, you know, elevated to, to star status in, in Ohio Valley Wrestling, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was cut and dry for, for a guy that, you know, could have went home to his family, but he chose to, to reach down and pull somebody up. So, what was your mindset when you told that match was happening? I was half scared, but I was excited. You know, I, I wrestled with Al Snow a couple months before, and, and you know, it had the big match feel, and it was a really good match. I was really excited for it. I know you've also been there uh, with the uh, late great Chris Candino. Uh, what was that like? Um, I feel like I was still kind of green then. I mean, he led me, and the match was was, was great. It was, it was a lot of fun. He was joking around out there. Had me pull his pants down, and he had his, his heart thong on. I mean, he was he was clowning, and it was funny. But I, I still, I, I wasn't as confident as I was in later matches. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, how long did it take you to to find that confidence? How's the matches? I, I don't know. Maybe. Light balls would come on progressively mm-hmm. throughout the whole career, but about. Five or six years, it just it really came on, and then it became easy. And became, once it became easy, then it became fun. Mm-hmm. You know, you're out there worrying about I have to do this, and this is my plan, and I want to stick to this, and then your face goes blank, and you don't listen to people. But when you get out there and, and, and laugh and let them have a good time, the people see you're having a good time. So it's, it's, it's so much easier to suck the crowd in that way. Well, you mentioned listening to the people. Uh, more and more in wrestling, we're seeing kind of the art form change. So much is pre-planned and thought out. Uh, you know, what's your take on that as far as, you know, the it's not dying per se, but certainly not like it used to be kind of cold in the rain always. Now a lot of things are pre-planned, well thought out, no matter uh, what the audience was. What do you make of that style? Because you just talked about kind of connecting with the audience, uh, you know, and you're a trainer. So, so what do you make of that? So... Be a well-rounded performer. You need to be able to wrestle a live event match 
and you need to be able to wrestle a TV match. The TV match might be a little bit more fast-paced, but if you neglect to include the crowd, they're going to be quiet. And if you're on TV, they can pipe that in, and that's fine. You see people not doing anything, but you're, if you're in a live event, and it's not necessarily taped or on TV, that's when you really want to suck the crowd in. That's, that's the easiest way to, to, to really get the magic. A faster match that people can only read so fast. Mm-hmm. When we're kids and they play the video and it's the song and the ball bounces as the song when we sing, the ball can only bounce so fast. We can only perceive stuff so quickly. And generally, people are a step slower. Guys want to go out there and they want to read people, you know, Moby Dick when they should be reading people go spot go. Because that's what works. Simple and, and to the point. So do you think it's gotten a little too complicated these days? Um, I don't think so. If, if people are still watching and they're still making money, as long as guys aren't getting dangerous and nobody's getting hurt, but the guys that drew money mm-hmm. drew with their fists, feet planted, you know, mm-hmm. fighters. Well, uh, absolutely, that they did. Uh, were you one of those guys? A lot of people said that house shows are more and more fun to work. Do you agree with that, or do you have more fun doing the TV? I, I don't know because like a lot of the stuff Eugene did on TV was just crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, when 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 they had Eugene set up the the, the, the fireworks. I was playing with the thing during the day. Regal and I walked through that, and, I, and we were just like giggling like kids. It was so funny because everybody got scared. Um, I did so many crazy things, but the house shows is, is when you can relax a little bit mm-hmm. and really associate with the crowd and, and create eye contact and get the people to uh, uh, follow one, one one character and embrace a the character. Then, then it becomes fun and easy. Again, if you're watching live on Facebook, don't be afraid to comment. And uh, any questions you have, we'll ask them. I mean, as long as they're somewhat PG, PG-13 at least. So uh, I'm also here with my producer, uh, Travis Napper. Mr. Napper, you got any questions for Eugene? Anything you want to ask, say, think about? Something? If a mute swears, does his mother wash his hands with soap and water? <laughs> 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 oh, oh I'm, uh, I'm a visual guy, Eugene. <laughs> My question was more going to be around, the, you talked about William Regal. What was it like working with him? More like the comedy skits and how fun were those to do? Yeah, I, I, I met Regal. Uh, like I said, I was, I was trained by Danny Davis and Rip Rogers, but Rip was very good friends with Regal. They were tag partners in Germany. Rip was actually instrumental in getting Regal to the United States. He, he, dictated what he should write to Cowboy Bill Watts to get him into WCW. Um, so I'd known him, but then when they put me with Regal, then it was like the odd couple right there. It was definitely yin and yang, and, and he was the one that really got Eugene over. Without Regal, I don't think Eugene would have had the success that he had, but Eugene kind of what's the word, humanized maybe Regal. It's the first time we ever really saw some emotion mm-hmm. in William Regal for, for him to caring. He was always the villain, um, but I traveled with him and when I first started traveling, it was Regal and Tajiri and myself. And it was like Barnum Bailey Circus. Was, uh, no one could understand Regal or Tajiri, so Eugene had to drive and, and do all the ordering. <laughs> so uh, any, any stories you can share traveling like that? I, all, the, all the time. We would go to eat somewhere, and nobody could understand either one of them. And I would have to dictate it. We were walking in a building one day, and Regal goes, Young Master Eugene, there was a, a, a woman in the media, or a, a Marketing people from WWE was a woman. Well, what have I told you about young ladies and, and coming up to a door? So there was a potted plant next to it. I uprooted the potted plant, opened the door, and handed it to her. And she was like, 
and he just like, hey, like, like <laughs> I would always just try to crack him. <laughs> or I'd drive into the building, and all the fans would be on the fence, and I'd swerve a little bit, and Rigo would get out selling the heart deck, and Tajiri would get all crazy, and I'd go, I just got my permit. <laughs> all right so we talked a little bit about Ohio Valley Wrestling we can't mention Ohio Valley Wrestling without mentioning one guy uh, sure <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I pulled Kenny Bowen's pants down on Thanksgiving night in the Davis Arena and he never let it let, 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 uh, Damian Sandow was there and, mm-hmm. and I was selling pictures Kenny was selling pictures and Kenny kept saying I'm going to sell more pictures than you and I, I told uh and I said, however many he sells, say that I sold one less, one less so that he wins. So Kenny sold 27 pictures. Nick only sold 26. Oh, he wins. Raise his hand to the people. So the minute he raised his hands, he had like little women's stretch pants on all the way down to his ankles. And he was so, <laughs> he was so rotund, he couldn't bend over to get them up. So he's like, they stand there stuck. And some kid just goes and snaps a picture. <laughs> But well, I wasn't talking about Kenny Boland, but I'm glad I heard that story. We'll touch on him in just a second. Of course, I was talking about the uh, the infamous, the one and the only Jim Cornette, extra mayo mother. Uh, but uh, so, so what's your what's your memories of Jim Cornette? You got any stories you can share? Uh, you know, what was it like dealing with him? Uh, there's nobody quite like uh, well, Jim Cornette. I remember the first day Jimmy was there, like, like we'd seen him on TV, but none of us really knew him, knew, knew, knew how he was. And uh, so we were all kind of on edge and we were kind of worried because none of us were under contract. Again, none of us were under contract, the OVW guys, but then the WWE guys were starting to come in, so everybody's kind of worried about their spot. And uh, there used to be one guy named Handsome Jason Lee, and we had a, a long room with a TV at the end. So everybody would have to sit and, 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 and look at TV this way, and he'd sneak up next to you with his butt by your ear and then fart in your face. <laughs> he called it ba- basing someone. <laughs> <laughs> Cornet's there the first day, Cornet's in the office. Jerome uh, uh, Crony, who was the American Eagles, watching the screen. Jason Lee comes up and just squirts diarrhea all over his face. <laughs> <laughs> And Crony's from like Hazard, Kentucky. So yeah. you gotta, he goes, he's getting all over me. He's like throwing it. And he was trying to calm down because Cornette was there. Um, that's not the story you wanted. But Cornette was awesome to have there. I mean, like, when I finally got to work with him uh, and really got to know him, he, he was awesome. He, he, he raised Nick Dinsmore as a performer and, and set me apart and wrote everything for me and wrote everything well. I just wish I would have uh, been more confident with the with my business that I could have performed it better. Because a lot of times I, st- I still was unsure of what I was doing. I was, going, I was going through the motions and doing it, and at the end I go, "Okay, I get it." But we would have foresee the the end of the road. Obviously, these days he's best known for his controversial takes and his opinions and uh, his podcast, where he'll say whatever he damn well pleases. But uh, what's the biggest thing, thing that he, he taught you? You know, he's such a great mind for wrestling. It kind of gets lost in the sauce in 2022. What's the biggest thing he taught you to help you uh, elevate your game? I, I'm telling you, there's that one thing. Mm-hmm. He elevated me from a wrestler to a guy that was in a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he, gave me, he gave me, put a little shine on it. He, he wrote me in, in, into angles where I could perform and succeed. You know, he, he would make sure that if there was something I wasn't good at, he, he wouldn't write, you know, he, he wouldn't do it that way. Mm-hmm. I remember one time, either myself, Rob Conway, Doug Basham, Danny Basham were always in the main event because we did our TV taping live to tape. So it wasn't live, but we just taped it, and that was it. There, there was no editing. 
And uh, finally, Jimmy put Orton and Cena in the main event. And they went over by like two minutes and 13 seconds. And Cornette came back so freaking mad. Randy came back and saw the Cornette was mad, so Randy just left. So Cena comes back, you know, thinking they had a real good match. Gets the baseball bat and he's, he's beating his car, beating the, the windows on the building, screaming two minutes and thirteen seconds, and just beating stuff. And Cena's like, Cena goes from that down. I, I never went over. I went over on TV. Always hit my time. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that iconic class, Cena, Orton, Lesnar, Batista. You were around right at that time. What was it like? Uh, did you did you know that those guys would be the uh, all? I mean, frankly, you could call them all icons, and they all are. Uh, you know, did you know something special was brewing there when with those four? Yeah, each one of those guys had, had something you know very special. That whole class, Shelton, Benjamin, Victoria. I mean, all of them. They, they, they were they were athletes that were set apart from other people out from you know from, from regular people. And mm-hmm. I, I feel I am. But, I mean, that's what, you know, college athletes and, and professional performers, I mean, those are the kind of people that they are. Um, and Cena was a phenomenal performer. We, we would have promo class where we just try to stump somebody. you got a match against so-and-so, and you got to cut a promo. And one day somebody put him in a four-way Mario go-kart race between Captain Crunch, uh, uh, somebody else, Loch Ness Monster, and his own nuts, and he, he cut three separate promos on, on these fictitious characters, and they were all different. <laughs> I mean, he is so talented. His John Cena in the ring is just a sliver of, of what he could do. Uh, do you have any any John Cena stories from your time dealing with him in OVW? Oh yeah, we became pretty good friends. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, I used to ride with him in WWE. And uh, yeah, pretty, I remember one time it was uh, Johnny from the Spirit Squad. I think he got engaged. So, so we were in Tennessee where you can buy fireworks, and we got the uh, the bottom rockets, but not the bottom the Roman candles, right? Mm-hmm. So Cena's driving, and we're hanging out the side of the car, shooting the Roman candles, and go through a tunnel, and, shoot, and they're bouncing off, and we get to the hotel, and it's 2 in the morning, we're shooting these things off. Manager nearly called the police, but Cena talked to talked him out. <laughs> uh, I've always figured he could talk his way out of anything. Um, good dude. Uh, so, you know, would you say that he kind of, he really is that good guy that you kind of see on TV oh, overall? I think so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Somebody that does over 500 make-a-wishes yeah. can't be like a bad guy. He's, he's just he's genuinely nice. See, he's golden, McCarthy. He's golden. I've always but told you. He never drank until he met me. Yeah. So, yeah he played I, college football. Mm-hmm. He went to uh, uh, L.A. to become a bodybuilder. Never drank in his entire life. Came to Louisville. On my birthday, we went out. He, he did one shot. He was on buy you a shot. He bought 191. So we did shot 191. And then when he got on the road with uh, – JBL, mm-hmm. JBL pushed the beer on him, so he, he started drinking. I don't know if he still drinks now, mm-hmm. but he was—he was, he was, he was near, nearly Ric Flair drinking there for a bit. So, uh, well, uh, old Nate, but but so you—I t- don't drink either. So that means if I go hang out with you later on, you're gonna you're gonna talk me into some things. I would never peer pressure anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned Ric Flair. Obviously, you dealt with evolution, Eugene, coming up. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but I got to ask since you brought him up specifically, any, any Ric Flair stories? So, Ric Flair paid me one of the best compliments I feel like in my career. I wrestled Ric two, two matches. We were somewhere in South Carolina, just live events, and Ric was the, the heel. I let him lead the match. Mm-hmm. I didn't say a word. And he came back to me afterwards and he goes, I didn't know that you knew how to work. He was like, most guys, you hit them, they get right back up, you got to hit them again. But Eugene just sells and gets sympathy. And, and for him to say that, like, really, like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, 
but I got to put his robe on. Mm-hmm. I was hoping to keep one, but he wouldn't let me have it. Wouldn't let you have it. Did you ever go out and H him with an H? They wanted to do that segment. They wanted to do it where, uh, where, 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 where he ends up like, yeah. we, we, we see after in the bed. Yeah. And <laughs> I remember the spot from uh, Wayne's World when Garth finally you know, met up with a girl where he puts the pipe in and then it's the bubble pipe. Yeah. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make the cut, though. Uh, well, there's just no one like old, old Ric Flair. So you've gone out on the town with old Nate? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll save some of those stories for off air. At, at, at the WrestleMania, LA, no, I can't remember. But um, I was I was doing something, and my, my wife, it might have been in New Orleans, and my wife were, uh, was gone for a long time. I was like, where have you been? She goes, well, Ric Flair grabbed a lot of us and had us do shots at the bar. I said, well, when they says it's two shots, you got to do shots. There's nobody like old 16 time. So you, going back, you, de- you dealt with Jim Cornette. When you get the call that you're going to make your de- WWE debut in, in 2004, you know, what was that mindset? How'd you get told? And what were you thinking? Honestly, I, I really don't remember because at that point it just became like a surreal ride that just took off. Mm-hmm. It was all this preparation and, and working in the same building, being in the same place, the same battery night, and then all of a sudden it was just a big swoop and it just took off. I just remember I debuted in Houston and I was like, I was so sick, I had the flu or something. And uh, I remember I, I got like a bunch of night girl from the lobby at the hotel and just trying to sleep as much as I could. But the next day it was like, I don't know, it was on. It was, it was, Incredible. So you're Michael Jordan, flu game. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what, what were the what were the nerves like? You make that infamous debut on Monday Night Raw. You know you're you're the uh, you're the nephew of one Eric Bischoff, Old Easy. You know what's your what's your emotions? What's the nerves like? Well, the thing was, is at that point, I'd wrestled for eight years. Mm-hmm. So other than just being around Vince, which made me nervous, and the times I was around the Undertaker, although not on my debut, he made me nervous. Um, I'd done it over and over. So once I got in the ring, there were no nerves. It was just being around in the back with, with you know, in, in that situation where all the eyes are on me. And I don't, I don't think they thought it would succeed. They had Eugene wrestle one match before I started on TV. I wrestled in St. Louis. I wrestled Lance Cade in an afternoon show. Uh, it was, the Final Four was going on, so there was a basketball game going on. So it was, it was a good house, but it wasn't huge. And thank God to Lance Cade, who knew how to work with a gimmick. And people had never seen Eugene before. And most of the time, somebody, they go out at a live event and the fans have never seen him before. They, they don't give him any, you know, they won't cheer for him. They were chanting Eugene's name at the end of the match. And when I came back through the curtain, Triple H and Stephanie and Arn and Fit were all standing ovation. They said, you know, Triple H said, you know, you, you embraced the character and became the character. But I still don't think they thought it would succeed and just went out there because I'd have... A lot of guys would get caught up with one year experience, two years experience, and I think that's really a hindrance. I had eight years of experience, so I had made all those mistakes, and then it was just, you know, going and just doing the stuff that I knew how to do. So you talk about embracing the character, you talk about uh, Triple H and Arn, and, and what were, what was your mindset when you, you know, how, how challenging is it for you to, to be that character, given, you know, obviously the special needs connection? You know, what's that like for you? I don't know, it's just like... I don't know if you saw the Jim Carrey Netflix show where he talked about being Andy Kaufman. I did. And he said the time that he was in the movie, he was Andy, but mm-hmm. then they went him to do some takes afterwards and he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily, I, I don't think I can go all Eugene anymore. It was like a special time period with everything that was going on mm-hmm. and being with Regal and being in the moment and everybody, you know, everybody believing it was Eugene. It's like now is a, a kind of like a Eugene light, which is just a good time. Don't get hurt. Have, have, you know, let's, let's have everybody smile and have a good time by the end of the night. 
I remember when Eugene was debuting around the time they had the uh, the Diva Search contest, mm -hmm. and uh, all the Diva Search contests believed Eugene was Eugene, and I had to do a photo shoot for the uh, Christmas catalog, and I had a long footy pajamas, blue pajamas, but they were too small so that the butt flap wouldn't, and it was unbuttoned, and I'm walking down the hallway, and all the, the, the diva contestant girls are standing there, like, laughing, and then I hear Vince's voice, Eugene, your ass is hanging out, and I snuck in the locker room real quick. So you mentioned, we've mentioned old VKM, Vince Gilliam McMahon. What was your relationship like with him? And, you know, obviously he's uh, he's the Walt Disney of this genre. Uh, so uh, what, what's your relationship like with him? We've heard so many great stories, so many bad stories. What, what was it like dealing with this man? Uh, it, it, was, it was easy. It was easy to work for it. But everything that I, I, I didn't really get to know him too much beyond business. Mm -hmm. But because I was in those high matches, you know, he, he was always present. And he, I never once saw him yell at anybody. Never once saw him get upset. Not like... Mr. McMahon does yeah. on TV. Um, Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> kiss my ass. I was hoping Eugene could get the kiss my ass club. Remember at the Royal Rumble when he tore both of his legs? Yeah. Well, I had gotten hurt right before there, so mm -hmm. I was doing therapy in Birmingham when he had the surgery. So mm -hmm. I knew where the hospital was. I just went and asked for his room. They told me where his room was, so I just walked in. <laughs> and uh, he hadn't shaved for a couple of days. Like, you never see Vince with a shave. And he was like, I could tell he was like, you know, uncomfortable. And I said, I knew he had people there, but I was like, if, you know, I'm, I'm here in town. If you need anything, just let me know. I should have, well, one regret is I should have sat a chair down and just talked his ear off until he forced me to leave. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, but it was easy to work for him. He was a really nice guy. Yeah, because we always hear the stories of uh, he's got that electric razor in the back of the limo that he compulsively. Can't let it win. Uh, he can't let it win. Does he really do that? Yeah. I, I but, but, but he's always immaculately clean shaven. Yeah, and you, you know? we all still wonder if the hair is real. Uh, there's, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. yeah, yeah, yeah certainly. When he, when he shaved it. Well, yeah, I love, still a wonderful poof. He's lost a lot of things, but his hair is still golden. So It is, isn't it, McCarthy? Yeah. I mean, it's golden hair. You guys got anything you want to add? Don't let me, don't let me steal uh, the thunder. Go ahead. Go ahead, McCarthy. What is your favorite take and your favorite movie to give somebody? I don't want to take no moves, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Eugene does does the moves of the guys that he watched. So I like The Rock and, and Hulk Hogan, and he does the leg drop. The Rock does the rock bottom and the Stone Cold Stunner. I like doing the RKO. Mm, I don't know what else. In the Claw for Baron von Rash. Oh, yeah. Old school. Um, how about you, Napper? Anything? Yeah. Um. So I just don't want to take up any. You know, you guys step in and stop me. No, I, I can chat all day. He said he wanted a stink face. Who gives the most vicious chops? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's been so long since I've been chopped by anyone, but Ben Watts chops were up there. Flair's chops were up there. Rick Rogers used to blister me. It's not his first county fair. Well, the thing is, is you, you don't need to chop Eugene. You can get some sympathy if you just trip him. <laughs> it's the same, you know, if the, the people that beat up Eugene don't get the heat, the people that pick on Eugene get. That's that's very true. Uh, look, speaking of people picking on Eugene, you had that iconic moment where you worked with The Rock. You talked about him just a moment ago. Uh, and what was that like? You, you did, you know, the great one on Monday Night Raw, and of course, uh, Eugene was thrilled to say the least. He was all of us 
So what was that moment like for you? So that, that was probably you know, one, one of the high, if not the highest point in my career. We, we, get to, we were in San Diego, we get to the building, and on the West Coast, uh, they go live a little bit earlier, so we had to be at the building maybe 10 a.m. or 11, a little bit earlier than the one o'clock time call on the, on the East Coast. And Sylvain Grenier, one half of La Resistance, comes up to me, and he was good friends with Pat Patterson. Pat's in the meeting. Slide goes, they're gonna bring somebody in for you tonight. This big thing, and it's either going to be the rock or they're going to use rhino. And no, not the rhino, but he's no rock. <laughs> I'm like, the rock ain't coming, ain't no, ain't no way he's coming, whatever. And uh, a little bit before the show, maybe two hours before the show, he, he shows up. I was like, holy cow. But I was in like, I think, six segments that night. I think we're all at 13 segments. I think I was in six segments. So I was running around working on this segment, working on this segment, go back, and Brian Gerwick, the writer, wrote the rock stuff, he wrote Eugene stuff. Go, go over the promo in the ring, work, 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 finally. And every time we go back, I had one line in the whole thing, I had one line. And every time I in the back, I missed it. Every time in the back, I missed it. And we get out there, we're live on TV, and, and The Rock's walking around, and he just puts the mic down and goes, your line's next, kid, and just fed it to me. And if it wasn't for The Rock, talk about somebody, he didn't know me. He, he, he was in Hollywood at the time. He didn't have to come to San Diego on, on you know, take time, time out of the schedule, but he wanted to pull somebody up. And it was The Rock that made me a star. After that, I was seen totally differently. And then I walked out of the building. I mean, it was it was night and day. It was like, I don't want to say I was Beatles over, but I mean, it was like, yeah. it, was, it was incredible. We're walking out of the building in San Diego and people were just hoarding me like, oh my God, Eugene, because I was a rock's friend. Uh, so so what was that like for you to deal with that new level of, let's call it fame or notoriety? Uh, I mean, like, you know, I can still go back to, to living in Louisville where everybody just knew me, but I mean, it was just building, but. There was no, I never felt like uh, uncomfortable or like, you know, stifled or anything, but it was just, it was, it was just a ride. I remember Regal and I were doing a media day, I think we were in Milwaukee, and it's after Triple H had, had beat me up and I hurt my, hurt my arm and I had a sling on. And the Duchess of York, Sarah Ferguson, was there promoting Weight Watchers, I think is what she was promoting. And Regal said told me one time that the working class is improper, they're not allowed to approach the royalty. All of a sudden, there's Sarah Ferguson, the judge of New York, and he's like, like a dog, you know, just like, oh my God, going nuts. She comes over to me, oh my God, what happened to you? And I said, oh, I got hurt. So this is my friend William from England. And we got up and we all got a picture, and he put that in his book. And it was like, it was really cool to see, like, the guy won't sell anything. You know, like, actually, you know, all the time. And he, like, we really thought that was cool. So that was just one, one thing that being on that level, these kind of things that happen. It, that is, it's incredible. And speaking of uh, incredible moments and kind of being on the level, of course, WrestleMania 21, we have to chat about it. You, uh, you know, you had the moment with, uh, Hassan and, and of course, uh, the Hulkster. What the, you gonna do, brother? The immortal one comes out to, to do you a rescue. What was that? What was that moment like for you? Uh, dealing with, what was it like dealing with Hulk? Oh, easy peasy. That was awesome. So I trained Muhammad Hassan. He, he moved to Louisville, Mark Magnus, and I trained him. So I knew him. So it was awesome being in the ring with him. Davari for a long time. It was an easy bit, except I had had surgery in January. And this was like late March, right? Something like that, maybe into early April. So I wasn't even cleared to wrestle. I could barely move. And if you watch it, sometimes when he puts the camera clutch on I me, mean, I can't even lay flat because my knee was just in so much pain. But Hulk was just out there, you know, another guy pulled somebody up. And that's what he did. And I remember uh, when I was a coach at the performance center, and Hulk came there, and he was going to do a photo shoot because he was going to debut on Raw or return on Raw at some point, maybe the next night or the next week. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, "Oh my gosh, Eugene's here!" So he recognized me. So then I was like, "Hulk recognized me, you know." 
so you know, what were your interactions like with him? Were they all were they all, the rare times you dealt with him? Were they? Yeah, yeah, just a handful of times. But I mean, he was he was cool. But you know, like we were talking about earlier, I went on the, the Hogan tour of Australia with him, mm-hmm. and we got to hang out at the pool, and, and it, was, it was a lot you know a lot easier. I mean, just a laid back, cool guy. Uh, let's let's talk about that tour, uh, the Hulkamania tour. Uh, the, of course, that was actually the re- first return match as a Ric Flair after his kind of brief retirement from WWE. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's never wrestled for WWE since, but his brief in retirement ended there. What was that like being on that tour? It was awesome. I mean, it was first class all the way. We did, I, I think, four cities in, in Australia, mm-hmm. huge buildings, we were five-star hotels. I mean, it was one time that I really got to uh, – See Australia because we usually had a couple of days off, and I remember it was it was winter here, but it was like right summer right there, so it was like beautiful out. I was at the beach. Uh, some of the Rakishi, some of the, some of the Samoans lived there, so they brought us over. We had a big cookout. I remember hanging at the pool one day, and Hulk's just sitting there. Like, wow, Brutus comes down in a thong, I mean, just all jacked up. <laughs> <laughs> and the nasty boys were on it, so that, mm-hmm. that, that, that's always entertaining. Uh, so, uh, what, uh, can you give us some uh, give us a nasty boy story from from that that uh, tour? So, on the flight over, his name used to have a night a night talk show. I think it was on uh, I think it was on Comedy Central. The blonde hair woman, oh, uh, uh, Chelsea Handler. Yes. Yeah. Mm, yep. Chelsea Handler was going over to Australia to uh, uh, film for two weeks or something. And I remember when she came back, I was watching the show, and she goes, I just want to say we were in first class with those professional wrestlers, and Brutus the Barber Beefcake is the most disgusting, vile man I've ever seen in my life. And I'm going, Brutus is actually nice. He's laid back, you know. But Hacksaw clued me in later. I think what happened was Brian Knobs. Like, like, Beefcake was asleep. So like, I'm Brutus the Barber Beefcake. And just being a complete, you know. <laughs> loud, nasty boy in first class, and Chelsea Handler just—he told her the wrong name. Well, nasty I am. Have you have you kept up with his uh, health issues? Uh, when's uh, I've seen a little bit. Yeah, with him on Facebook. My mom used to see him down in St. Pete at the, at the uh, flea market. I think they closed the flea market. Maybe he's open now. So, uh, when, when's the last time you you communicated with Brian? Has it been a while? Or because, uh, like I said, we know yeah, he's yeah, had yeah, it's, had it's health issues. Uh, but going back to that tour, what was that like for you? Because, uh, you know, what were you thinking as a fan? I mean, you're on a tour that's getting main evented by Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. Again, Ric Flair's first match is out of retirement, rightfully or wrongfully. What was your mindset on that? Oh, man, it was just awesome. It was like being a kid, you know. I got yeah. to go out there and do what I liked and have fun. And it was laid back. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, wasn't a whole lot of pressure because it was all, you know, live event type matches. Mm-hmm. And then be able to sit and watch Hogan against Flair. And they built it up uh, uh, in the weeks prior on, on Australian television with the big bust open Hogan on TV. Yeah, yeah, you were there for that press conference. I mean, Flair's going nuts. He's like, this ain't WCW. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, what was that like? Because uh, awesome. fans loved it. I mean, there were people that were wondering if that was if that was a complete shoot. I mean, that's how crazy Ric Flair looked during that moment. Flair gets out of control sometimes. Man. Oh, there's no question about it. <laughs> sometimes? Uh, there's, there's no question about that. Uh, but, just... Did you ever think about doing something else like that with that tour? Did you ever think about doing more? Uh, I don't know. I wasn't in that meeting. I didn't have that pencil. Nice job. Uh, So, well, that's great on me for asking that question. Just talent. Just talent. Just talent. So, all right. I actually do got something. Um, You were talking about being a a trainer at the Performance Center. What was that experience like? Would you ever consider going back and doing that? Well, absolutely. I mean, A, you lived in Florida, you know, and B, it was like, 
Triple H apparently, okay, so the story goes, when Triple H was transitioning from this on-air in-ring talent to uh, corporate talent, not talent, whatever it's called, corporate uh, employeeship, Vince goes, I want you to go around to every unit or part, every department in WWE and come back and give me a report. So he went to marketing, went to travel, went to payroll, blah, 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 and comes back. It's all, it, everything's got that WWE degree of excellence. He goes, except for that developmental system. Because at the time, FCW was an indie company that WWE was contracting with, just like they did with OBW, an indie company that WWE would contract with to train their talent. So Vince goes, okay, well then, that's your department. Vince, uh, Triple H went to the uh, New York Giants training facility and saw what they had. And then he tried to replicate, you know, to, to his taste, the uh, performance center. And it's, if somebody goes to the performance center and does not succeed, then there shouldn't be an excuse that, that they shouldn't succeed. I mean, you've got the entire video library that you can pull up to watch any promo, any match, any angle. You've got, with all the coaches there, the amount of knowledge that they have, and all the time they're bringing in people that, that would just, you know, come in for a week to, to guest coach. And, you know, there's just constantly people in the ring and just, I mean, it's, it's just like a, a Harvard or professional wrestling almost where, where, where you know, guys going just as hard as they go and, uh, learning the business. Well, you got anything else? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll touch back on the Eugene character in general. Um, do you, would you see that character at all being more accepted, at least in terms of, the vision you had behind it and the significance behind what that character was supposed to represent. And if it could be done again, this, you know, and in this environment, is there anybody, do you, I don't know if you follow along with anybody today, like who would best fit that character? Well, if WWE wanted it to be done, they would do it right and it would work and it would make sense and it would be accepted. They've got the ability, the creative genius that, that, that they can do that. They took the mask off Kane and made it, and, and made it, made it, made it mean something. So it's like they can really do whatever they want. Um, but the one thing I didn't get to do was there was never a turn between Regal and Eugene. Regal is now on air talent in AEW. That's where Eugene should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's let's just for a second let's talk about that. What's your what's your thoughts on AEW? I think it's a good product, and, and I think you know any anytime there's more wrestling, it's always good because now there's somewhere that guys can go. Because when when WCW is around, if you you could take the offer from WWE, you could sniff out an, an offer from, from WCW, and you had, you had a little bit of leverage as a uh, negotiator mm-hmm. in a contract. But now when WWE was was only show, was only game in town, it. it, it Lopsided it, and guys kind of had to had to go with WWE without you know having a second choice. That's why also I think a union is needed. Uh, do you do you think that's ever possible to get done? Because I've always thought that as long as Vince McMahon is upright, a union uh, be very very tough to pull off. Let's see if uh, if they sell part of the company, hypothetically to maybe Fox or someone. I think then it could happen. Do you think he'll sell? I've never thought he will because he's well, so stubborn. Well, well, the thing is, is, is when he went public, he sold five percent of the company. Sure. When we were in uh, WrestleMania in Detroit. Ford was going to buy a portion of the TV, portion of, of WWE. I don't think I don't think that ever came out. But um, I mean, I think he might sell a little bit. Maybe 
I don't know. Because I, I just, you know, we always hear these stories. I obviously have not met the man you have, but we always hear about how he's such a workaholic. And I figure, well, workaholics have got to work. What would he do if he didn't have that empire to run? And his mother just passed away at 101. Bruce talks like he might run down to be another 35 years at 76. He could. I mean, so, this might be 50 years down the road, but I think that yeah. there might be something set up where, where you eventually go demonize. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing, like, is it just WWE guys? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, include everyone? What, what, what makes someone a professional wrestler? Right. You know? Well, have you, have you heard about the rumors of Freddie Prince Jr. when he started his own company and he wants it to be unionized? Uh, my lawyer said that I can neither confirm nor deny that I've spoken to Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take the hint on that one and we'll move it right along. Uh, but your other passion besides, besides, of course, getting in the ring is, is training. What, how did that become a passion for you? Obviously, you started your own promotion, recently sold it. Talk about that. Well, Danny Davis entrusted me with the key to the building so I could get in the building at any time. And it was just something that I think came easy that I could describe and relay information simplistically to the, you know, the, the students that, that, that could understand it. I could quickly assess their strengths and try to play to their strengths and hide their weaknesses. Um, be able to, you know, just describe how you need to move your body and the body language that you have to have. And you might need to stand up a little more and just very patient. I was very patient and it was just it was something that came natural. So when Danny started having me training guys uh, at OBW, uh, in 98, no, maybe 99-ish, mm-hmm. 2000, and I would start training the guys on Saturday. Developmental talent and all the WWE roster would train throughout the week. The Saturday class, which was called the beginner's class, we guys would move from wherever. Uh, JTG moved to Louisville and signed up for that class. Uh, Muhammad Hassan, Johnny Jeter, Johnny from the Spirit Squad. Chris Cage, who was and uh, Alejandro uh, Armando Alejandro Estrada. Estrada, yeah. yeah he, he moved there and just signed up for a class. We we trained two hours on, on a Saturday, and the guys that had a little bit of athletic ability, guys that I would like, I would say, well, come to the show tonight, and they travel to wherever OVW had a show. They'd help set up the ring. I might get in the ring with a little bit before the show there. Um, it was just all kinds of crazy guys. So is that where your focus is more now? Uh, you know, where's your where's your passion level for for getting in the ring versus being a trainer? Well, in 2015, I moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where my wife's from, and uh, we started a professional wrestling company. I sold that uh, December of last year, so I haven't. Um, I'm not doing any in ring tra- in ring training right now. I'm focusing on you know getting Eugene booked on the weekends, and I keep trying to. I've been attempting to write a book. I'm a little slow at it, and I think I need an editor, but I'm just, just you know, creeping forward. That's well, the goal. Well, I got, well, I got, I got to ask, where are you at in that process? So, you know, writing a book. I got a bunch of just stuff put together, and I got, I don't know, I need an editor mm-hmm. to really, really flesh it out. Mm-hmm. I have an idea in my head, but. I start reading too much, then all the words run together, and it's just too much for me. Okay, well, uh, so do you have a do you have a desire to get back into the training portion, or are you just are you for now? If it comes around, absolutely. You know, just, you know, I've been training guys quite some time. Step away from that just a little bit. I would be remiss if I didn't ask. You know, what's the what's the biggest piece of advice you could give an in ring talent trying to trying to break in and make it? Burn your boots. Burn your boots. <laughs> That's the quote of the day right there. 
Burn your boots. Uh, and frankly, that I Wooster whooping. <laughs> that needs to be a hashtag immediately. It is. Yes. Good. So, uh, and and frankly, I, I've got to ask for for we are four people trying to break into the business on the well production side. I know that uh, Napper and I we we'll do play by play tomorrow. What's the biggest piece of advice you could give uh, for anyone trying to break in, whether that's in ring or out of it? Um, just. Get trained properly by someone or work with a company that is that is safe and knows what they're doing so, so that nobody gets hurt, nobody gets injured. Um, and then don't let anybody do anything stupid. You know, like, like sometimes guys will, will attempt to do something and it might sound good on paper, but then when you watch it back, it either gets somebody hurt or becomes very offensive or, you know, we're here to entertain the people. Mm-hmm. Everything we do is for the people. It's not for us. Don't matter if I like it. It's if they like it. We're trying to draw people. We're trying to put Bums in seats, as they say. Um, and just if you have a good time, then it's, 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 people will see you're having a good time. Well, uh, then, what do you make of uh, backyard wrestlers, <laughs> the people that are uh, not necessarily so uh, professionally trained? I'm, I'm not. I, I wouldn't encourage anyone to do it. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say that these guys are awful because these are guys that want to be wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I, if there would have been a backyard federation, you know, when I was 16, 17 years old, 15 years old, I would have been right there. It's just, uh, just it's very dangerous. It can be very dangerous. So just hope no one gets hurt. Well, well, let's 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 go back to that. Dad. You know, a few more minutes of your time here. You talk about being 14, 15 years old. What where did that passion for wrestling come from? You've been a fan your whole life. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. I think, uh, you know, when did you decide this is what I want to do? I grew up outside of Indianapolis in a small town called Greencastle, Indiana. So we didn't have USWA, the Memphis-based TV. Mm-hmm. But I saw Saturday Night's Main Event. Uh, very, I think it was the very first one. It was nineteen eighty three. Um, Uncle Elmer got married. Um, I think you know, I can't remember if it was Hogan against Volkov. I, I saw Orndorff chase Piper after Piper turned on the WrestleMania one. Orndorff chased him to the back, and I was like, "Oh, this is it, man!" I, you know, I think I was seven or eight years old. I was like, "Oh man, this is it. This is what I want to do right here." And after that, I was, I was captured. You know, I'd go to the grocery with my mom to the magazine stand and pick out all the wrestling magazines. I just tried to watch as much as I could. But we lived way out in the country, so I didn't have cable. So I never got to see – well, I would get to see WCW, NWA if I stayed at somebody's house that lived in the city. But I would just get most of the WF product. Mm-hmm. And when we moved to Louisville, then I got to see USWA. Then we lived in the city, so we had cable. So I got to see WCW and, and all, all the cable wrestling. Uh, it, was, it was really – it was a lot of USWA that really hooked me because – I felt their style was entertaining and fun and funny, and I could go down every Tuesday night and watch these guys at the Louisville Gardens. Uh, and then, so, I was just about to talk about the fact that that's the Louisville Gardens, and, of course, you spent a great portion of your career. We talked about the match against Benoit at the Louisville Gardens. I mean, what a full circle moment. What's that like when you really reflect on it, the fact that you you grew up watching that and then you were you were main event in big houses for OVW. Yeah, well, I, I mean, but I, I went on to, to wrestle with all kinds of guys. I, I was in the Mid-South Coliseum against Jerry Lawler. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, 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 Corey Macklin and myself mm-hmm. against Jimmy Hart and Jerry Lawler. And, and they, they were giving away two used cars from the used car lot. They were the sponsor. And we did TV, live TV in Memphis earlier in the day. And Eugene and Corey Macklin chased Lawler and Jimmy Hart out of the TV studio. They get in the first car they take off. Corey and Eugene get in the second car. Ladies and gentlemen, come to Mid-South Coliseum tonight. You could win this car. And it doesn't start. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't start. So Eugene just gets out and starts running after him. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it was awesome, you know, like you're talking about, to, 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 as a kid going to the Louisville Gardens mm-hmm. and watching wrestling and then being in there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you talk about working with Lawler and, and Jimmy Hart. What was that? What was that like for you? What was that process? That was fun. I, it was over Christmas break, and I remember I just did a phone-in interview, and then they played it live on TV. Corey Macklin had the angle with Lawler, and they just brought in Eugene, and then I was to neutralize Jimmy Hart. And I talked about how Jimmy Hart never signed an eight by ten for me when I was a kid, but I asked him, and he was too mean, so now he's going to come back. And Roll into Memphis TWA and tell all the lucky ladies that Eugene's on his way. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Valiant, be proud. Jimmy Valiant will Mercy be proud. Mama. Handsome Jimmy got seven old ladies, baby. Handsome Jimmy named his son Handsome. <laughs> Did he really? Yes. I, I knew a lot about, uh, about old Handsome Jimmy, as you found out kind of when we were talking beforehand, but I did not know that. Yeah. There is only one Boogie Woogie Man, that That's is for sure. That boy from New York City. Something about two years ago, we were at so. the convention, and, and I got to breakfast with him, so well, I, I kissed him on the mouth, not by choice, uh, but that's. But he, but he. When I went over to meet him, I, I told you everybody about meeting him. He goes, uh, "Where are you at?" And I, you know, I point out my seat. He goes, "I'll see you." And he comes over, and I mean, just plants one on me. You know, that's just the way he is. I, I hope he's Jimmy. Uh, personal note: I hope you've stopped that in post-COVID times. <laughs> so you call you, you call him Boogie Woogie? Yeah. To, to me, to me, he's Boogie Woogie. I feel like he's had almost three. Hall of Fame career. Yeah. You know, his, his WWF stuff, the Valiant Brothers, but then his run in Memphis is something that's completely different than the Boogie Woogie Man that, that was in Mid Atlantic. He's, he's a phenomenal performer. He talks so soft and he's so nice, but then he gets in there and Handsome Jimmy starts hooting and hollering yeah. and screaming. Yeah, but to, to me, he's like Coca-Cola. He's all over. That's, that's, that's exactly, but that's incredible to, to have that, you know, like you talked about, three almost Hall of Fame careers. Uh, just incredible, and really, frankly, to some extent, you pull it off as well because how how shift you know maybe not to the Hall of Fame extent, but you, you have to shift from Mr. Wrestling to to being, of course, uh, the man will have uh, close us out here in just a few moments. Eugene, you know how how difficult is that to have? Well, hold on, but I was also doing the clown. I did two Fair two enough. two performances as doing the clown. I was the I believe the sixth performer. And it's my opinion that Doink the Clown should be in the WWE Hall of Fame. I agree. That's a timeless character that the fans instantly recognize. It makes people happy. I mean, he could come back at any time, and the fans would love him. And Eugene went out there, and I was uh, Doink the Clown on, I think it was it was a pay-per-view. We were in Denver, and it was JBL's Barroom Brawl, I think. Mm-hmm. And they said, we want you to stay for SmackDown, which was on Tuesday, taped on the Tuesday, we want you to wrestle Chris Benoit on SmackDown for 20 minutes. It was after the match I had in Louisville with Chris mm-hmm. Benoit. And I thought to myself, you want Doink the Clown to wrestle one of your top guys, Chris Benoit, for 20 minutes on TV? Okay. Genius. Yeah, okay. And so we get there, right? you guys only got about 15 minutes. Okay, no problem. That's still, at that point, Doink hadn't been on TV in, in, in 15 years, 20 years. Like It might not be the guy to put against you know one of your top guys. You guys only got 10 minutes. But when it came down to it, 90 seconds, which was fine, which is what it should have been. It just needed to be Benoit killing me, or maybe not that, but uh, beating me up. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to edit that out. <laughs> it's already out there. We're live. We're live, pal. We've said far worse, I promise. We're- we're, we're, we're just fine on that. Now you've, you've met the right crowd. Uh, just, just 
two more questions I want to personally ask you. Number one, what's your relationship like with WWE now? Well, I mean, like, we don't talk every day, but if, if, if they would need something, they would yeah. contact me. There was, they contacted me not too long ago because there was a... I went to India for, for three months and trained 24 Indian wrestlers that didn't know how to wrestle and didn't speak English with Savio Vega and made Rinky King wrestling. And one of them, they were considering hiring or might be in the process of hiring. And they just wanted to... My opinion on him. He's a very good, very tall, very athletic character. Uh... And then, what are your goals left in wrestling or outside of it? What, what's what's left for you to do? What do you, Win the world title. What are you talking about? That's us hey. All the way to the world title. All the way to the world title. All right. I was, trying, I was trying to angle for a match against Trevor Murdoch when he was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, but I, I, I would love to eluded him. I, I would love to see it. What about you and Matt Cardona or Nick Aldis if he wins here in June? Uh, like I, I would wrestle any, any of those guys, and it'd be yeah. fun. But but I, I travel with Trevor, so I know Trevor like like, like really well. He's, he's a good friend, yeah. and I think I know how to beat him. So I thought I could win the title. All I right, would tr- I would trick him with biscuits and gravy. <laughs> I and he would be on it, and I'd roll him up one, two, three, new champion. I did see him roll into a Wendy's last year at an NWA event afterwards because uh, it was a real small all town, uh, just an hour out of N- Nashville. It was in in Kentucky. And there's this one area that has a pilot, a subway, and a Wendy's. And we all swarmed there after the show. And Trevor Murdoch got beat down by Mike Knox. And I, I noticed that NWA people are, are coming in. And so I'm, I'm sitting there marking out. And I'm like, I'm not leaving this spot. I told Peyton, park the car. We're just watching. I'll be darned if Trevor, if Trevor Murdoch didn't get beat down by Mike Knox. Two hours later, I watched him walk in just fine in a Wendy's. Just fine in a Wendy's. He has, he has incredible recuperative abilities. Incredible. Incredible. Because he's very flexible. He's got flexible uh, tendon and ligaments. <laughs> that's the key. Yes, so that's going to be the new fashion fad, the new workout fad, is flexing your tendons and ligaments so that you can you know, take, a, take a beating. Yes, if you flex your tendons like Trevor Murdoch, maybe you can be NWA World Heavyweight Champion. All right, Eugene. Well, we, we've got to close it out by, again, let's talk quickly about Dylan's Autism Awareness Fundraiser tomorrow. You and Rob Conway. That's right. Uh, tomorrow night, we're going to be at the Cornerstone Gym right there in Worcester, Ohio. The Worcester Wolfman is coming to the Cornerstone Gym. Dylan's annual Autism Awareness Fundraiser, and I'm wrestling Rob Conway. I've wrestled Rob Conway in all kinds of matches, steel cage matches. I've wrestled in loser league town matches. I've wrestled him in coal miners glove on a pole match, but he ain't never taken a Worcester whooping. And when I break that car out, I'm going to say... This is all they need to know. Yes, so tomorrow night, tickets will be available at the door. You want to be there, I guarantee it, because what in the blue hell is a Worcester whoop? And we'll find out. Eugene, thank you so much. And as somebody that is, uh, as somebody that truly grew up watching you, and you made me smile and uh, occasionally cry just because that's how good you were, uh, this has been a true honor and thrill for me. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time. You guys got any final comments before we bid farewell? Jason, you got any? Honestly, thanks for coming out. I mean, I didn't grow up watching you. I'm slightly older than these gentlemen, but there, they, there were a lot of <laughs> bras that I watched with my friends, and you were kind of the highlight of them for a lot of the time. The things that you were doing and how seriously you took the character, but not too seriously. Like, you, you embodied that character, but it wasn't like, this is everything for me. Like, I you could kind of tell you knew when to turn it off and really turn it up. And I know like, and we were trying to be wrestlers then, and that was real inspirational for us. You just have a good time and, and want everybody to have a good time. And just, you know, 
a, a, a boy following his dream, achieving his dream, just like, you know, Christmas morning every day. So it was, it was an honor just to be able to do it, to take that ride. As somebody that has cerebral palsy, and again, I was uh, just, a, just a young lad in Eugene's prime, I can't tell you uh, what it meant to me because, you know, when, I'm not, when you don't become jaded and know all the inner workings of the business, to watch somebody, and, and it truly inspired me as a child. So, again, thank you for that, and thank you for taking the time to do this. And thank you, fine folks, for watching. This has been To the Turnbuckle, presented by Snapmare Productions. Come out to Dylan's annual autism fundraiser tomorrow. Eugene's going to be there, and Rob Conway, he's in trouble with a big wooster whoop. And we're out of here, boys, and thanks again so much.